Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of Psalms. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Since we began studying the book of Psalms, when we have come across shorter psalms or psalms that are pretty plain on their face that don't need a lot of interpretation, I have combined psalms so that some weeks we've been able to look at two in a night. And usually when I combine them, I try to find some similarity between them so that I can combine them and still make a lesson out of it for the night. Occasionally, we have not been able to find any correlating information, but tonight, we're going to start in Psalm 48, because you may recall that weeks ago, as we were going two psalms by two psalms each week, I skipped over Psalm number 48, and I said we'd get back to it. Well, tonight we're getting back to it. Because Psalm 48 is about Jerusalem. It is an ode to Jerusalem. It is David writing about the grandeur, the beauty of Jerusalem. And that Jerusalem as a city was the greatest of the cities in the Middle East, so much so that when foreign kings would see it, they would be terrified by it, run away from it rather than fight. Psalm 48 is this wonderful, beautiful psalm about God's faithfulness to Jerusalem. Then we're going to look at Psalm 55. Psalm 55, David is going to describe what's wrong with Jerusalem. It's got people in it. And he's going to talk about his enemies. And he's going to use language that is warlike language. And so much of his language is going to sound like he's talking about perhaps the Arameans or perhaps any of his enemies, the Philistines. But actually... He uncovers midway through the psalm that he's really talking about enemies within the gates, people who are his friends who have turned their back on him. And that, he says, is pretty much the deepest cut. In fact, he even goes so far as to say, if it was enemies from foreign nations, it was foreign armies, I could deal with that. Even if it was some foreign king, some foreign enemy that was after me, I could hide from him. But he says the trouble in his life that is causing him so much anguish is people from within that are trying to do him damage. So that is the correlation between the two psalms we're going to look at tonight. We're going to start with Jerusalem, the lovely and blessed city, the place where God chose to place his name, the place where the temple of Yahweh is, where the worship of God is, where God is a fortress, a protector of that city, and then we're going to work our way to the people of the city and David's fear of the enemies within. So, Psalm 48, verse 1. Great is Yahweh, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, 
his holy mountain. These are all nicknames for Jerusalem, the holy mountain. It is also on a hillside. It is truly elevated. It is lifted up as a city, which means since it had almost like a rock wall behind it and it was lifted up in elevation, it was hard for enemies to kind of sneak up on it because you could see them coming in the open plain. You could go in, close the gates, fight from the walls. And so it was perfectly situated and Jerusalem is still situated higher than the elevation of most of uh, the Middle East there. And so David comments on how beautiful that is in verse 2. Beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north. Mount Zion is a nickname for Jerusalem, but just north of Jerusalem is the actual physical Mount Zion, one of the seven mountains that surrounds Jerusalem. So, so far, geographically, everything he is saying is accurate about Jerusalem. And God is to be praised because God is worshipped. His temple is in Jerusalem. So great is Yahweh, greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Beautiful for elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. God, in her palaces, in other words, living in the palaces of Jerusalem, has made himself known as a stronghold, as a fortress. He is the defense for Jerusalem. And then he offers the evidence that God has been their protector and their stronghold, which is why they exist in the beautiful location that they do. He says, for lo, the kings, the foreign kings, assembled themselves, and they passed by together. In other words, they, they never conquered us. They never came within the walls. Every time they came near us, they passed by. They saw it, and then they were amazed and then they were terrified, and then they fled in fear, in alarm, because panic seized them there, anguish as of a woman in childbirth. And then as another demonstration of the fact that God has been the protector for Jerusalem, he says in verse 7, with the east wind, you do break the ships of Tarshish. What does that mean? The ships of Tarshish were the trading ships that would go to the places west of the Middle East and off into the islands, the Tin Islands, the Britain Islands. And they would bring back all kinds of treasures, all kinds of things that made the kings of the Middle East rich. And yet God sometimes, rather than let those riches reach these foreign kings, God would just destroy the ships themselves. And so David comments on that, that by using nothing more than the wind, he would break apart the ships of Tarshish. Verse 8, as we have heard, so have we seen. So we haven't just heard that you are our protector, that you are our fortress, that you are the one who has protected us like a stronghold. 
But we've seen it with our own eyes. We've seen the way you have protected us and preserved us. As we have heard, so we have seen. In the city of Yahweh of hosts, in the city of our God. God will establish her forever. Selah. Think about that. Okay, so now we've read the book of Revelation, and we've gone into Revelation in some great detail. Is the statement that David just made a true statement? Well, it turns out that yes, it is, because you get to the end of the book of Revelation, you get to the end of the Bible, you get to Revelation 21, 22, and you read about the new Jerusalem, which could have been named anything. It could have been named the new Chicago. Well, let's hope not. It could have been named the new Peru, the new Australia, the new... It could have been named the new anything. But what a surprise that Jerusalem, which looms so large throughout the Bible, would also be the place where God continues to have his name, to have his worship. He is the temple there. So, in fact, David is prophetically telling the truth. He is expecting, since he has the Davidic covenant, since he knows that his progenitors are going to sit on the throne of David for eternity, ruling over the collective 12 tribes of Israel, he expects that the city itself is going to be established forever. History has shown us that Jerusalem has existed and been defeated, and has existed and been defeated. In our particular time, ever since 1948, the reestablishment again of Israel, there's been Jerusalem again. Sometimes it's been under the headship of the Romans and sometimes under the, the Muslim Turks. But what David has said is that this city that belongs to God is going to be established by God in a forever fashion And that's certainly what we read at the end of the Bible in Revelation. So David has told the truth, and then he tells you to pause and think about that. So how much, then, does God love Jerusalem? Very much. A whole lot. Can you think of any city that used to exist that doesn't exist anymore? Sure, plenty of them. And yet, despite the world's efforts to destroy and knock down and create rubble where Jerusalem used to be, Jerusalem, even in our day, stands yet again and is going to stand eternally. And so it deserves this ode of praise. It deserves to be called the beautiful city, the city of our God, the city that is going to be established forever. We have thought about your loving kindness, says verse 9. We have thought on your loving kindness, O God, in the midst of your temple. Because the temple sits in Jerusalem. So when we're in your temple, behind the walls of your great city, we realize that it is only your grace, your kindness, your love that has allowed us to exist here in your temple, in your city. Verse 10 says, As is thy name, O God, so is thy praise to the ends of the earth. So the same way that the name of Elohim exists in the whole world, so does the praise of Elohim exist in the whole world. Your right hand is full of righteousness. So 
Verse 11, knowing all of that, let Mount Zion be glad and let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. And when God judges, he judges in righteousness because in his right hand is a fullness of righteousness. And so Zion can be happy. Judah can rejoice because the judgments of God are going to be in their favor. And then starting at verse 12, it's like David's invitation to anyone who's willing to just go look at Jerusalem. Just go size it up. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Count her towers. Consider her ramparts. Go through her palaces so that you can tell it to the next generation. So not only are you supposed to come and see how magnificent Jerusalem is, beautiful in its elevation, with God as its protector, but you can look at the many ways that it can protect itself. It has high walls. It has high towers and ramparts. It has beautiful palaces. And then once you know that, Be ready to tell it. Be ready to tell it to the next generation. So David is really looking forward to God maintaining Jerusalem all the way out into eternity. And generation by generation by generation, the descendants of Israel are to talk about God's faithfulness to Jerusalem. So that you may tell it to the next generation. For such is God, our God forever and ever, and he will guide us all the way through our lives. He will guide us until death. Okay, so that's a beautiful psalm. It didn't need a whole lot of exposition. I didn't need to do a whole lot of interpreting. It's pretty plain on its face. God is faithful in his love for Jerusalem, and at the time that David was king there, and certainly Solomon behind him, Jerusalem stood above all the other nations for its wealth, for its beauty, for the wisdom of its kings, and for its God that gave them a law and gave them prophets, gave them the oracles of God. So Jerusalem was truly unique among all the cities of the world, and David expected it to remain that way. We know historically that it's gone through periods of existing and periods of rubble, and yet David rightly said, it will exist forever. And so far, we would have to agree and say, well, it's been 3,000 years, and it's still here. And God assures us that New Jerusalem is our eternal home. So it is going to exist forever. Okay, so go over to Psalm 55. With that as background, now that we know that David has said, how great Jerusalem is as a city, as a place, as the housing for God's temple and the worship of God. Nevertheless, in Psalm 55, he starts out by saying, listen to me, God, because I've got a complaint here. Within the walls of this beautiful city, there's people trying to kill me. It is for the choir director to be played on stringed instruments, a masculine of David. We've seen that word several times. It means contemplative 
or didactic. Pay attention to it. It is a teaching psalm. And it starts out with a typical Hebraism, especially used a lot in Hebrew poetry, where you state something in the positive and the negative. In other words, you say, do this, and then you follow that with, and don't not do this. You, you looked at me quizzically about my don't not. My double negative threw you off. Is that what happened? Here, I'll give you an example. The first verse. Give ear to my prayer, O Elohim, O God. So David is asking, pay attention. Bend low. Listen to my prayer, my request to you. And now he puts it in the negative. And do not hide yourself from my supplication. So do what I'm asking And don't not do what I'm asking. Give ear to my prayer, O God. Do not hide yourself from my prayer, from my supplication before you. Give heed to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint. And I am surely distracted. He's worried in his mind. He's constantly at fear. So David is moaning, and in a moment he's going to say, I do this morning, all night, I do it in the midday, I do it in the evening when I lay down, it never stops. I'm constantly worried, constantly concerned, and so that's why he could say, I'm restless in my complaint. I get no rest from this. Because of the voice of the enemy, says verse 3, Because of the pressure of the wicked. For they bring down trouble upon me. And in anger, they bear a grudge against me. Okay, if you only read that far, you would assume that David was talking about his enemies. Other kings, other armies coming against him. Enemies from without the city walls. Because he's in terror here. And there are some people who in anger bear this grudge against him and bring trouble to him. Verse 4 says, My heart is in anguish within me, and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. So he's really fearing for his life. He really believes that someone is out to get him. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror or trembling has overwhelmed me. I can't stop thinking about this. I do it all day, all night. I can't stop. I'm restless in it. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me. Then he says, and I said, oh, that I had wings like a dove. And then I would fly away and be at rest. Behold, I would wander far away and I would lodge in the wilderness. Selah, think about that. So whatever it is that has him this scared, this worried, and I'm trying to emphasize how upset, how worried David is at this moment. Because whatever it is that's happening to him is relentless. It won't give up. On him, It just keeps him in a constant state of worry and panic and trembling and fear 
It has overwhelmed him, and he just wishes he could just get away from it. I think we all know that feeling when the worries and troubles of life are so overwhelming that you wish you could do something, anything, just to make it stop. And so he says, I wish that I was like a bird, because if I was, I'd be out of here. I would fly away. Behold, I would wander far away, and I'd lodge in the wilderness. They'd never find me. I just want to escape. Verse 8. I would run, I would hasten quickly to my place of refuge from the stormy wind and the tempest. So David has dedicated a lot of ink to saying how bad his situation is. He has used a lot of different words in order to describe his emotional state. He's really scared. He's really worried. He's really terrified. Fear and trembling are upon him all day, all night. And so he says, if I could run away, I would. If I could escape it, I would. But since I can't, I have to go to God and look at verse 9. The prayer to God is, confuse, O Lord, divide their tongues. He's saying to God, do what you did at the Tower of Babel. I know you have the ability to confuse their tongues so that they can no longer coordinate together. Clearly, there is a coordinated effort against David happening somewhere. But up until now, he hasn't told you where or who. All he's told you is it's bad and it's terrifying me to the degree that I wish I could escape or that God would intervene and divide their tongues so that they can no longer conspire against me because I have seen violence and strife in the city. In Jerusalem, beautiful Jerusalem, the place where the worship of God is, the place where God placed his name, the one that other kings and other armies have passed by and seen and realized they couldn't conquer and ran away in fear. That Jerusalem has violence and strife in it. And in fact, verse 10 says, day and night, they go around her, around the city of Jerusalem, upon her walls. Back in Psalm 48, he said, look at these beautiful walls. Look at our towers. Look at our ramparts. Look at our defenses. Those very same walls have people on them both day and night conspiring against David. They go around her upon her walls, and iniquity and mischief are in their midst. These are people looking to stir up trouble. David is not primarily afraid of enemies from the outside. All of this fear he's talking about, all of this dread, all of this worry, all of this sleeplessness is a result of enemies on the inside. We can apply this so many ways. Iniquity and mischief are in her midst. Destruction is in her midst. Oppression and deceit do not depart from her streets. Look at verse 12. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, not some foreign king. 
It's not some overwhelming army. It's not someone who is an avowed enemy of mine who I can identify. He says, if it were an enemy that reproached me, then I could bear it. He said, well, yeah, he hates me, but he's always hated me. So I'm not surprised that he hates me. I can live with that. Then he says, nor is it one who hates me who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him. Like Saul. King Saul was out to get David. And what did David do? He ran and he hid from him. Because Saul hated him enough to want him dead. And exalted himself against David. But David successfully ran and hid from him. So it's not an enemy who reproaches me. Then I could bear that. Nor is it one who hates me who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him. But now he directs it to whoever he's really talking about. It's almost like he's pointing his finger at them and says, but it is you, my equal, my compatriot, one who was on my level. He calls them my companion and my familiar friend. Some commentators have said that at that moment he's probably, though there's no evidence for this, he's probably talking about Ahithophel who actually sided with Absalom against David. And once upon a time, he was friend to David. So maybe that's what inspired David here. We don't know that that's specifically what he was talking about. But that's certainly a good example of someone who sat with David, who ate with David, who was David's friend, who then turned against David. And David is tired of these people who have been his friends, who are now turning their backs on him, usually for political gain, usually because they think the tide has turned against David and then they would abandon David, proving that their friendship was always based on political benefit. Shall we apply that? No, we'll just let that sit. But it sounds awfully familiar to the events that are going on in the world right about now. It is you, a man, my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend. We who had sweet fellowship together, we who walked in the house of God, in the congregation, in the throng. In other words, we were out in public seen as close friends, close companions. We walked in the temple of God together. I believed you believed God the way I believed God. You were my companion, my compatriot, my familiar friend. And now you've turned on me. And that's what David is most afraid of. That is what he is most upset by, is that twist of a knife from somebody he loved and trusted. So then he goes back to praying to God. A minute ago, he prayed to God, confuse their tongue, confuse their language so that they can't keep conspiring. Now in verse 15, he says, let death come deceitfully upon them. In other words, so that they don't see it coming. Just kill them, God. Let death come upon them deceitfully. 
and let them go down alive into the pit, into the grave, into Sheol. For evil is in their dwelling and in their midst. Think about the level of betrayal you have to have encountered for there to be someone who you loved as a brother, a trusted companion, a familiar friend, somebody with whom you had sweet fellowship. What could they do that was so bad that you would then say, kill them, God, drop them alive into the pit because they are evil. There's evil in their houses, in their dwellings, and in the people they hang out with. In their midst, it's all evil. Clearly, David feels terribly betrayed. Verse 16, David says, even though I want you to judge them, as for me, I shall call upon Elohim. I shall call upon God and the Lord, and Yahweh will save me. I pray that you drop them alive into the pit, but I'm confident that you will save me. Verse 17, evening, at night, as it's getting dark, I'm getting ready for bed. Through the night and morning, and in the midday, at noon, I will complain and murmur. And he, God, will hear my voice. He will redeem my soul in peace from the battle which is against me. So he keeps using this language of warfare and battle and enemies. And yet he's talking about particular people within his own city, within his own gates, who have turned against him with such evil violence that he's in fear for his life. He will redeem my soul in peace from the battle which is against me, for they are many who strive with me. God will hear and answer them, even the one who sits enthroned from old Selah. In other words, judgment's coming. David knows that he's the man after God's own heart. He knows he's had prophets tell him that God anointed him to be king of Israel. He knows that he has a covenant with God that God is going to put successively his family on the throne, ruling the 12 tribes, leading all the way to Messiah and ultimately the kingdom to come. He knows all the promises God has made to him, and he is standing on those promises faithfully and saying, God is going to protect me. God is going to redeem my soul. He's going to give me peace from this battle. God is going to hear and answer me, but he's also going to hear and answer them according to their evil, according to their deeds, according to the fact that they have lifted up their hand against God's anointed king. And this is the very David who, when he had the opportunity to kill Saul, wouldn't do it and said to his men, touch not the Lord's anointed. He so revered the anointing of God and the sovereign placement of God that he recognized that those who had turned their hand against him were actually turning their hand against the plan of God. And so he expected the judgment of God against them. God will hear and answer them 
even the one who sits enthroned from old, God from ancient of days, God who sits on his own throne, he's the one they're going to have to answer to. Think about it. That's pretty sobering. Now he's talking about those, his enemies, with whom there is no change. The King James says, because there is no change. The Legacy Standard Bible also goes with, because there is no change within them, that is why they do not fear God. God has not converted them. God has not taken out their stony heart and given them a heart of flesh. God has not given them the ability to believe or to have faith in him. As a consequence, their evil remains within them. There is no change in them, and they do not fear God. So judgment is indeed coming from the one who sits enthroned from of old. Then talking about those same enemies, he talks about their faithlessness even to each other. He has put forth his hands against those who were at peace with him. These are the ones who used to walk with David, used to have fellowship with David, used to have confidence with David. And now they've put forth their hand against the very one who's always been at peace with them. They have no reason to go to war with him. They have no reason to oppose him or to want to hate him or to fight against him. But there's no change in them because they don't fear God. So they put forth their hands against those who they were at peace at. And they violate their own agreements, their own covenants. Verse 21, his speech, actually the word literally is his mouth, was smoother than butter, but his heart was war. David only knows that now in retrospect. Sure, when we were walking and talking together, hanging out together, you said all these wonderful things to me that made me believe that you were with me, that you were on my side, that you could be trusted, that I could have confidence in you. Oh, your speech, your talk, your words were just smoother than butter. But inside, I now recognize your heart was war against me. His words were softer than oil, and yet they were actually drawn swords. They were so smooth, so good sounding, and they were all meant to lead me into a false sense of security for my own destruction. And I see that now. I see now that your heart was always at war and that your words are nothing but drawn swords as you cut me down. Verse 22, again, David gets his heart right and goes back to trusting God. And says, cast your burden upon Yahweh, and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken, to be overthrown, to be toppled is actually the word. So David recognizes, okay, I've been betrayed by close friends, dear friends, people I thought I could trust. And I can't change them. There is no change in them. And because there's no change in them, they don't fear God. They're going to have to stand before God one day, and God is going to be their judge. So all I can do is trust God, that God knows that God has got this in his hand, and that God is going to 
judge them righteously. So cast your burden upon Yahweh, and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be toppled over. But you, O God, will bring them down to the pit of destruction. God will judge. God will judge the unfaithful of this world. He will judge the liars. He will judge the warriors of this world. And the covenant breakers, the truce breakers, the liars of this world, the men who shed blood, the evil will be judged. And all we can do is wait for that judgment and trust that God is going to preserve us in the here and now and ultimately judge our enemies because they are his enemies. They are men of bloodshed and deceit. And they will not live out half their days, but I will trust in God. So those two psalms I thought were an interesting contrast, which is why I chose to stick those two together this week. Because it went from the beauty and the magnificence of Jerusalem structurally. And the biggest problem with Jerusalem is that God let sinners in it. God let people in it. It reminds me of a phrase I've used often through the years. That church is a great idea. Church is God's idea. Handful of aces. Church, great idea. The problem with church is God let people in it. And once you get people in, then you get infighting and politicking and backbiting and all the stuff that is typical of humans. And the only way there's ever going to be peace in a church, the only way there's ever going to be unity of heart, unity of fellowship, unity of faith, is if God does it. God has to produce that peace in us, change us from the inside, change our hearts, change our spirits, so that we are all unified around our common belief in Christ. And that is why we can be patient with one another and why we can be forgiving and long-suffering with each other, not because Tom's a great guy. I mean, Tom's a good guy, but not because we look at Tom and go, well, you know, handful of aces, that guy, but because we recognize that even for whatever differences we might have, they're nothing in comparison to what we have in common. And we're going to spend eternity together. We might as well get used to each other now because we share that common faith. And the enemies that destroy any organization, the enemies that destroy any great nation, the enemies that destroy any government structure, any business structure, the enemies that ultimately do it in are the ones from the inside. It's usually not the ones from the outside. Right now, Russia and China are conspiring, and there's a lot of hand-wringing going on. And God knows what he's doing, and he hasn't fallen off his throne. But the problems that are happening in America right now that really affect us are the ones that are happening within. Amen. We don't wake up in the middle of the night and go, oh, no, China. That's not our biggest concern. But we do wake up sometimes thinking, what kind of world are my children going to grow up in? What's going to happen to us Financially, What's happening to the food supply? What's happening to our society? What's happening to morality? What's happening to the concept of shame and dignity? Those things are all being corrupted from the inside. 
That's what David had to deal with. That's what we have to deal with to this very day. And were it not for God protecting us, preserving us, well, then we would have no hope. I am confident that what David wrote is true. God will protect us, preserve us, and save us right up until the day of our death and all the way into the new Jerusalem that will exist forever. So it's really about faith. It comes down to that. And it's really about grace. Questions? Where's all the dead babies in the last 50 years? Russia didn't do that. China didn't do that. That's right. That's a problem within. It is interesting. I mean, this, is, this betrayal from the inside is such a big part of David and his life. And that just to think about that, you know, David and David's greater son betrayed from the inside by Judas. It certainly has echoes, doesn't it? of Jesus being betrayed by one who sat at his table and ate his food. Betrayed with a kiss. Yeah, that betrayal from within is kind of a theme as it goes. If you look at the fact that uh, Jesus even said to Jerusalem, all the prophets were sent to you, and they all died at Jerusalem. They were all betrayed from within. Yeah. It's kind of a theme. Yeah, it is. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.